Well, within most of us, there is probably a certain expectation or at least hope that in the end, unlike the title that I have selected this morning, in the end, it is the good guys or the good gals, the good side who wins. While there is truth to that, and really it is what provides us an ultimate sense of confidence that one day all things will be made right and that ultimate victory does belong to the Lord, there are certainly seasons of life in which it seems that the people of God or that the ways of God are somehow falling just a little bit short. I was thinking about the life and more specifically the end of the life of John the Baptist in regard to that. King Herod heard of it, it being the ministry of Jesus and the way that his popularity was spreading. For Jesus' name had become known and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he, Jesus, is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised? For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, John, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. John the Baptist is one of the more interesting characters in Scripture. He's introduced before he was even born. You remember, as this, these pictures depict, his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Advanced in age, had been praying for a child. Now suddenly, after almost all hope was gone through the passing of time and 
the ticking of the biological clock, the angel Gabriel meets Zechariah as he's offering incense in the sanctuary. And he says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will call him John. Even the prophecy of John's soon coming arrival and all that was connected to his birth, in keeping with that, his existence on earth was a little odd. He wore camel's hair garments. The Bible says that he ate locusts and wild honey. His hair and beard were uncut. Elizabeth makes that promise. He probably seemed a little crazy to most people. His message, though, was consistent and clear. Repent and live right before God. It didn't matter who you were. His message was the same. Including... King Herod. Unafraid to speak truth to power, as the saying goes, John spoke once too much. King Herod had him arrested after his bold preaching breached the palace walls and challenged the decisions made by the king in light of his relationship with his brother's wife, Herodias. Herodias, it's interesting to me, her her role in this, that she was the one who, Mark explains, held the grudge against John the Baptist. She didn't want John the Baptist interfering with her new role as queen. As much as Herod wanted to please his new wife, he was interested were intrigued by the teaching that John was proclaiming. And so he kind of just pushed her request to the side to do away with John the Baptist. Herod had no problem doing away with political or civil opponents. Concurrent to all of this taking place with John the Baptist, In his critique of life inside the palace, his cousin, remember Elizabeth and Mary, were cousins. John the Baptist and Jesus would be second cousins or something like that. Jesus' ministry had commenced and his fame and popularity was really starting to spread. There were stories of incredible crowds and miraculous healing. And yet, even as that was going on, Cousin John finds himself in the dungeon. Because Herod, probably in an attempt to appease Herodias, had John the Baptist arrested. Kind of out of sight, out of mind, probably, was his hope. You can imagine what was going through the mind of John the Baptist. If Jesus really was the Messiah, and you'll remember John the Baptist 
the initiation of Jesus' ministry as he walks along the Sea of, of Galilee, John the Baptist is the one who points to him and says, look, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And then John the Baptist baptizes him. How the minutes must have drug on in John the Baptist's mind. Cousin Jesus, the, the, the one who seemed to be able to do anything, couldn't unlock the door of John the Baptist's prison cell. Well, eventually, the questions in John's mind become more than he can handle on his own, and he gets word to those who had been his followers and says, hey, go, go just double-check and confirm that I pointed to the right guy walking along the Sea of Galilee that day. Go and ask Jesus if he truly is the Messiah. Are you the one to come, or are we to wait for another? Remember what Jesus says to John the Baptist? John the Baptist was probably hoping Jesus would, I don't know, unlock the door. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm unlocking, unlocking uh, the blind to receive sight. I'm healing the lame, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the followers of John the Baptist come back and tell him the good news. And then they leave. And old John is still there, sitting in the prison cell. One day, John hears someone approaching the cell. I don't know exactly where the prison was in relation to the festivities going on in the palace. I have no idea whether John could hear the commotion upstairs as the party went on and on and on and the dignitaries were there, but John no doubt heard someone coming to the cell and maybe he thought, finally, the day has come. Jesus is here to let me out, and instead it's a guy with a sword, and before John could say anything else, not to get too graphic, but whoop! As opposed to freedom from his chains, he meets his demise when Herod grants his new wife her request. And then in a verse that is eerily similar to one that comes later on in Mark about Jesus. They came, John the Baptist's disciples, remember John the Baptist had a following of his own. They came and laid his body in a tomb. That's how John the Baptist's story ends. From the outside looking in, I don't know how you could come to any other conclusion than that we'd have to chalk one up for the bad guys. We wish it was the rarity, but goodness gracious, 
throughout history on down to the present moment, countless millions have suffered horribly. For some, death has been an escape from a terrible life. It makes me feel guilty, honestly, for the junk I complain about in my life, you know? The blessings that God has given me, us, I dare say. I don't want to diminish any of the issues that we go through because they are significant to us, but there have been countless whose lives have been filled with horrible suffering and violence. So what is our response as people of faith when presented with the existence of that sort of evil. I think it is part it is in part perspective. Even the placement of this story in Mark's gospel speaks a little bit to this. John the Baptist is first introduced way back in chapter one. Now Mark, Mark, because of its a brevity because of the shortness of Mark's gospel, only 16 chapters long, and Mark is the one who everything happens immediately. In fact, that's even used in this, in this, uh, uh, in this chapter in regard to, uh, uh, to, to Herod and, and, and how, how he immediately sends the executioner and, and so on. But anyway, Mark introduces uh, John in chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested. So we have this mention of John's arrest, although not the full story that's provided a couple chapters later. We have mention of John's arrest way back in chapter 1. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Interestingly, in chapter 1, nothing more is mentioned. The why, the how, the who, just that John was arrest, arrested, excuse me, because rightfully the focus of the gospel is the story of Jesus. John is the one who points, and then the focal point of the gospel is Jesus. And within the first six chapters, Jesus' popularity is absolutely exploding. People are trying to hone in on exactly who Jesus is. Is he Elijah reincarnate? Others said, and this is where this story comes into play, John the Baptist has come back to life, cluing us in that John the Baptist has been killed already by the time this passage is mentioned. It's Herod. Herod is the one who says, what, is, is this John? I killed John the Baptist. And then Mark fills in the details. Maybe the spirit of the Lord led Mark to include it specifically for those times when we are discouraged by the presence and progress of evil. Mark's gospel certainly includes time of struggle and discouragement in the life of Jesus. Conflict with, with religious leaders, arrest and trial, crucifixion, death. The format and the layout of, of, of uh, Mark's gospel, including this mention of John the Baptist in Mark 1 and this almost parenthetical 
filling in the blanks of whatever happened to John the Baptist in Mark 6 begs the question, is the story over when it looks like the bad guys have won? Or put another way, is the story over, readers of Mark's gospel, when Jesus is laying in the tomb? Of course not. Of course not, they would say. Victory, victory is assured even in the face of earthly death. Yes, absolutely. There are horrific things that occur in this world, and there are days and events in which there is no other conclusion other than evil has won the day. But in the message delivered in the gospel and the hope of our faith is that even in those days we take courage because evil never has the final word. You may remember this picture from last summer in our study of Revelation. When the lamb is the one, this, this slain lamb is the one on the throne. And the victorious mass choir made up of every tribe and nation and tongue proclaims the kingdom of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. May we have faith to remember and believe this even when the night seems dark. Oh Lord, increase our faith, we pray. Help us to remember that the one who spoke the world into existence is the one who holds the final world of the final final word both in this world and in our lives. May it give us hope. May it inspire us to walk as your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything is going going well. Uh, just trying to figure out. What we really need, you know, moving, moving really helps you with priorities when it comes to stuff, uh, which is good, which is good. Okay, well, we are going to uh, be in Mark chapter 6 this morning. This is just directly after that kind of parenthetical passage that we read about last week in uh, the demise of John the Baptist. There's kind of almost literally a parenthesis in Mark's Gospel in chapter 6. I don't have it up on the screen today. I'm just going to read it. If you want to follow along in your uh, Bible, you certainly can do that. Mark 6, though, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowd away and go into the surrounding 
uh, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds, by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. O oh Lord, these words we pray that you uh, would uh, plant them deeply in our hearts. We ask that we would be open uh, to your message for us this day. As the psalmist wrote, O Lord, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. What a great story. What we typically term the the feeding of the 5,000. I think probably once or twice or maybe three or four times that account has been a focus of mine from this passage or a similar uh, uh, recounting of this event in one of the Gospels. It won't be today. Uh, It won't be today. I I was taken with Jesus. We, We don't really know whether he said it or thought it. It's not completely clear from Mark's Gospel whether it was a an internal uh, kind of uh, reflection or something that he verbally uh, uttered. But his assessment of the crowd was clear. And I think significant. As he saw the crowd, and, and just to paint the picture, the, the disciples have been out ministering. Jesus has sent them out. And so the spread of his message is... We, <laughs> We, we talked 15 months ago about exponential spread, you know, with the, with the virus and so on, that if one person infects whatever it was then, four people, and then those four people infect four people, you, you really escalate the numbers of, uh, of the infected. Well, I don't want to talk about necessarily being infected with the gospel, but that's kind of what Jesus was going for. He could only reach so many people, even with the large crowd. He could only be in one place at once. And so he gathers these 12, and, and maybe other passages list up to 72 who he had sent out, with the thought being that, well, shoot, you could, you could be in, I think they usually went in groups of two, so divide 12 by two or 72 by two, whatever it was, whatever the size of the group was that was going out to minister at that particular point. And then they came back to kind of debrief, to explain to Jesus what they had been up to, the successes that they'd experienced, and maybe... Maybe those that weren't uh, quite as successful. And Jesus encourages them, and it's a, a mutual encouragement to go someplace where they can rest. So they begin to do that. In fact, they, they go, they begin to cross the lake to a desolate place. Well, the desolate place soon becomes very crowded because the crowd sees Jesus and the disciples. The text says that they recognized him, and they race. They're going by, it, 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 it reminds me of the, 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 uh, the principle that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. The, the disciples and Jesus on the boat had a much straighter line across the sea than, than the crowd who was running 
or walking along the shore around. But by the time they land and, and Jesus gets out of the boat, his thought or his, his words are, these folk are sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Here they were in a, desert, in a deserted spot in which their, their goal was to, to get away, to refresh. And they encounter this group, some hoping to see miracles, some suffering, all hoping for healing of one, uh, one kind or another, all pressing in to see Jesus. And Jesus summarizes the general identity, regardless of need or, or uh, uh, motivation for their interest, as sheep without a shepherd. The analogy of a shepherd is not unique to Mark. It is not unique even to the Gospels. It is not unique to the New Testament. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23 includes an account of God referring to the leaders of his people, Israel, as shepherds. In that passage, though, God condemns those shepherds who destroy and scatter, as that passage said, the the people of God, and, and God promises to gather the scattered sheep and to raise up shepherds who will do a good job of shepherding. In the passage from Mark, Jesus, among the people of God at that point, notes that God's task is not yet finished because the people of God were still, as Jesus says, sheep without a shepherd. That great psalm that we read from the 23rd Psalm just a few moments ago, I'm a, I'd have to double check my, my notes, sis, but I'm about 90% sure we included that in John's service about a year ago right now. Well-known passage presenting the Lord himself as the shepherd. You probably remember from John's Gospel where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. At the time of Jesus' arrival, though, in his ministry, kind of the outset of his ministry in this particular passage, the sheep remained scattered. Unlike the sheep in the 23rd Psalm, <coughs> the people of Jesus' day, and, and many in ours, if we're being honest, and sometimes us, fail to realize that it is with the shepherd's care that we want nothing. Even with this reality, many of us try to take care of ourselves on our own. Sheep without a shepherd, Jesus' phrase or thought, really describes all those whose relationship with God has broken down or is non-existent. It remains a primary issue for our society, and I would suggest even the root cause of many of the symptoms that we see, many of the issues that we run into in our society today. For a number of reasons. Sometimes those trusted as Shepherds, even those who stand in pulpits 
like this, and I do not say this in, in any way uh, with, with a spirit of judgment. I say it with a spirit of, of great humility, but there are folk who have done a poor job in their call to be God's shepherds. The result in people being hurt for the rest of their lives and suspect of all that the church teaches and as a result resistant to the good shepherd himself. Other times, sheep, people, are obstinate and they just kind of scatter on their own. (laughs) There's also the situation when, to continue the analogy, when poor lambs never seemed to have had a shepherd or had opportunity to be introduced to God, the good shepherd. Whatever the case may be, whatever the case may be that results in distance from the good shepherd, the result is just that, the tragedy of alienation from a God who so deeply loves each one of us. You know, the the sheep shepherd analogy, even though in a more agrarian society would have been absolutely perfect. For us, for most of us, it seems somewhat distant, maybe somewhat dated. I think the root teaching behind sheep, shepherd, shepherd, sheep, God relating to us, us relating to God, is that every created thing is bound to eventually realize that it is only in God that we live and move and have our being. That we are dependent on God as shepherd, as the one who directs us and cares for us and provides for us. And so then you think about sheep who, in response to a shepherd like that, say, in essence, I think I know a better way for myself. I was trying to think, and, and I'm not sure, I, I, I think it breaks down more quickly than I would, would maybe hope, but I, I was thinking about, about these trucks. One of these boys, maybe both of them, it may have even been on the way to church last week. We came across one of these, and it was, I think it was on the way to church, because I think we were on 635. Hauling a bunch of Ford F-150 pickup trucks. All of them looked identical. I didn't take a picture while I was driving, obviously. This is the difference. This is compliments of Google. But let's say, let's say that one of these haulers ended up at the local dealership, and, and you came, and I'm not even sure what, what make these cars are. Maybe Ford. That green one kind of looks like my Ford. I had a little Ford Contour. It kind of reminds me of it. But let's say that you went to the dealership and you needed a new car and you walked in and you found one. Pick your color, white, red, green, kind of a blue, silver, gray. And you found one you liked and you bought it and you started driving it. And one day, like one of the shows, the car started talking back to you. And it said to you, I think I'm tired of you putting gasoline in me. I think we, I think you should have really gone with at least a hybrid, if not an electric car. And, and I think there's a better way for me to operate than, than gasoline. Well, you know, with, with advances in technology, I don't know how it works, but they say you could almost operate a car just, you know, charging it with electricity. 
So I'm sure it's possible for some, depending on the uh, configuration of the engine and, 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 uh, and the car itself, but the car you bought requires gasoline. And without gasoline, a car could still look nice, but it ain't going to drive. At least one with a gas-powered engine. We would, we would look at that and we would say, well, what? What in the world kind of right does, does this Ford Taurus have to tell me, the one who purchased it, how it's going to be operated? Now I got to get to my point before this analogy really breaks down. Maybe, maybe that helps us though to kind of see sheep shepherd. Can you imagine a sheep saying to a shepherd, I don't want to go that way. Yes, yes, I know you promised me to, to, to lead me to green pastures, but boy, that, that, that grass, it looks like Jonathan's grass, that, that kind of burnt grass, right? That, that really looks good to me. Hmm? Or, or I, I think I see a better path. I, I think I see a better path for me to take to get where I need to, to, to be. The, the shepherd says to the sheep, well, you know, I'm, I'm about three feet taller than you are, and I can see things that you can't see. I hope, I hope the application I'm trying to make is clear. Whether it be a sheep who talks back to a shepherd or a Ford Escort who talks back to its owner about the right way for it to be operated. Sometimes I find myself in, in that very... And you never, you never realize it while you're doing it, do you? <laughs> you never realize how ridiculous it sounds while you're in the midst of, of, uh, of, uh, of arguing with God or negotiating with God to think that, that we know a better way. So Jesus crosses over the sea and, and he lands and he sees these folk. Well, to be honest, he sees us. He sees us without a clue about exactly what it is that we most deeply need most of the time. Or a bigger problem for a sheep dependent on the shepherd, not recognizing the shepherd himself. The Bible says in Mark that Jesus began to teach them many things. Teach them many things. Part of the passage that Bill read from Ephesians as we open our service spells out a great deal of the things that Jesus revealed. Perhaps the greatest truth of the gospel is the reliability of the shepherd and the fact that God, God Almighty, omnipotent God, cares, not only deeply cares from a distance, but is present. A shepherd who didn't send some sort of a contract worker to take care of the sheep. A shepherd who sent his very son to be the, the good shepherd. Without the Lord, we are without hope. But with, with God's presence coming in flesh and blood, he, he brought us near by coming near to us. God created this nearness by being near himself. And then we get to know the Lord Jesus 
and accept him. He's abolished the law, as Bill read from Ephesians, which said that if you sin, you die. Instead, he died. And God in Christ, by his grace, is able to forgive our sin, reconciling us all through the cross. So he came near, and the good shepherd proclaimed peace, proclaims that same message now. Peace to you who were far off, peace to those who are near. You know, as Jesus in this moment in his ministry proclaims the the teaching that he brought, he, he still has much left to do. Much of his teaching, all of his dying, his triumphant resurrection are still in the future, but in his essence, The essence of the reason why he came was present in that moment because he came to be near. God was in Christ even in that moment loving and beginning the process of reconciling the world. And so even in those initial days of his ministry, as those who brought the sick and waited for the touch of Jesus, you ever, you ever think about the folk who didn't, though living at the time of Jesus, weren't healed? The ones who maybe just missed him? The ones who were on the outskirts of the crowd? I wonder how many of them came to realize one day that Jesus' ability to minister was not limited, if I can use that word, limited to physical healing that he had greater aspirations for the people to whom he ministered. His goals were eternal. His goal was to be near for all of eternity. And God demonstrated that in the fact that he didn't spare even his beloved son, the evil which sin had brought down on his creation. But instead, God delivered his son up that the son for us makes certain that nothing, not death, not illness, not things present, not things to come, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, our good, good shepherd. Oh Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you that we no longer have to be like sheep without a shepherd. May our lives reflect that we are committing ourselves to walk with you. Give us understanding of your direction. Give us courage to walk the path. We ask this in Christ's name.